dollars a pair. Or more, yeah, more money. <laughs> I you don't get it. What, what do they buy? Jeans with holes all over them. Shredded, actually. Yes. They're just... Yes. I mean, that's all you can do is shake your head. Absolutely. I think some of them look better than others. I mean, some actually like just like... I've seen some with sort of threaded covers. It's a sort of style that goes with everything you're wearing, but somebody's like, you just have a big hole in your jeans and it doesn't look good. So I'm a little more... Nuanced in my critique. <laughs> I have some. Of Sorry, the freeway ramp was closed this morning. I'm sure it wasn't your fault. The freeway ramp? Yeah. Which one? Yeah. They're all down. Oh, Warner. 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 Old Warner. Warner South has been open. Then I went to Brookhurst, and that was all screwed up too. How come we lost everyone's picture? Oh, let's see. Why are you going up there? That's where I live. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> that far off? Why is it there? We have this issue. Oh, and okay. stamps. Alright, here's Ed. We have some signs of partners. Um, Adriana and Jim and Phyllis. Hello. To you. Elizabeth. Here they are. Diane, do you have that? Diane Thomas. Blessed Lord has taught all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant we may such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of thy holy word. You may embrace, never hold fast, the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Our, um, we're, we left off at First uh, Peter 3, 18. And um, it, it occurred to me in looking over um, this, this um, the sections we're going to cover in relationship to what we had gone before, um, that we talked about narrative themes of Peter. We talked about the theme of Peter playing on how Christians had a, a, a resident alien status, like whom? Abraham. Abraham. And that means that you live in the area but don't have any inheritance or standing. And then he, we talked about how Peter used the images of um, priesthood and church to define, excuse me, priesthood and temple to define the nature of the church. That you're a, a, a royal priesthood, that, that somehow being baptized into Christ, who is the high priest, we share in that in our own prayer, and that we, uh, he says, as living stones are being built in a temple. He went through that temple at some length last time, that we are now the place where God dwells, and that's our status and calling, um, fulfilling these Old Testament, and, and his, these Old Testament images. And we, we remember that, that the Images of priesthood and temple were central images to the Old Covenant. And 
Um, so Peter's showing how the new covenant, the, the old covenant has been fulfilled, and now uh, we, we as in the new covenant are um, um, heirs of all that meant. Now, it seems like there's a little bit of a shift in the narrative here with um, uh, the movement to suffering for um, doing right, committing to doing right, if you suffer for it, that being something that that is, is praiseworthy, commendable. And what, what narrative is he... Um, we've already touched on this a couple places in Peter. What narrative? Is, who, who? What narrative are we following there? Christ. Christ. How so? Well, he suffered for doing right. They okay. crucified him. Mm-hmm. And what was the end result of his suffering for doing what was right? A resurrection. And in judicial terms, what would we, what would we call the the resurrection? Vindication. Vindication. I think sure. about this a lot. She's on a roll. I'm like, give me vindication now. I want resurrection. So, so we should, we should, we should absolutely understand. And when you read the Bible, there's a a, a great deal of judicial language <laughs> I know, I That's that, that permeates the scriptures. Um, that um, and it's it's interesting, uh, and this actually gives us. Um, insight into the Psalms a little bit. C.S. Lewis actually has uh, a book on the Psalms that, uh, uh, that he makes an observation that um, that the language of the Psalms is, is very foreign to, to like a, a, our, our typical mind. Um, we're, we're asking God for mercy and, and coming in humility, which of course the Psalms also do. But preeminently, the psalmist is asking for a verdict. Mm-hmm. Give sentence with me, O God, and defend my cause. He's wanting God to vindicate him. And part of the ultimate horizon of fulfillment of the psalms is that the psalms are preeminently thought to be the voice of David, David who... Um, who was God's chosen, although he had a couple issues. There's one line in Kings or Chronicles or something like yeah. where, where they're you know, critiquing the king that says, and you know, David uh, followed God all his life, except in the case of, you know, it's like, okay. It's like, oh, I got angry one day and, 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 and yelled at me. It's like, that's a pretty big deal. But, um, but it's the mouth of, of, of David, and, and of course, Christ is the son of Christ. David. David. He's in the lineage. The son, he descent son. Descent. And so the Psalms ultimately speak with the voice of Christ. And no one's, when, when the psalmist pleads for vindication, the only mouth on which it makes sense is Christ. But David participates in that because he is the Lord's anointed and chosen prefiguring. But Christ is the one whose case is ultimately heard 
because he maintains his innocence throughout his life unto death, and resurrection is definitively a judicial verdict of vindication. Mm -hmm. I judge that you were in the right. And so when Peter is saying to us in our lives, he's talking specifically to first century slave workers, but I would back this up to all of the behavioral things he's talking about here. Um, submission to government, submission to masters, marital relationships, um, that righteous behavior in the face of something that's not right, that's how we follow in the path of Christ, and that's how we share in the verdict that, that was given to him in the resurrection. And this is, throughout the Pauline epistles, you'll get this word thrown out, blameless. Keep blameless until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that for us, that blamelessness is not like we've never sinned even seriously like David, but we, what, what it does mean is that um, through our, our baptism, our dying to sin and rising to new life, our sins have been washed away. They're no longer held against us. And it's why we continually come back to be cleansed again. It's an ongoing process of, and penitence is an ongoing reality, just as the, just as the grace of forgiveness is that we grow into. And so we appear before Christ when our, we're sorry for our sins and we put our faith in Jesus, we are justified. That's, that's the, because we are in Christ, and by virtue of being baptized into Christ, we share in his verdict. But we talked about this the other day, too, in some setting, that sometimes in our culture, especially like in evangelical circles, that's just like, oh, well, your sins are forgiven, so it doesn't matter. But the Bible doesn't really approach it that way. It says, your sins are forgiven, so it really does matter. You know, you, if this has happened, you've God has wiped your slate clean and, and incorporated you into, into the kingdom through connection to his son, then you need to live in a new way. That, that requires of you a vocational walk that mirrors his. And it's, it's, it's also that um, the gift of the Spirit also enables us to live that way, apart from this prayerful connection to God in Christ and the Spirit. We can't really live this way. We don't have the natural capacity to always respond to the evil with the good. You don't even have the spiritual capacity. We grow in that. We grow in it as we, as we learn, and we learn it doesn't work very well the other way. So, We'll pick up then at, at, um, at verse um, 18, and let's, let's just we'll pick up this theme that I kind of introduced um, about innocent suffering. Verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He died for our sins in order to bring us back into relationship with God. He 
Adam, the first man, failed in his vocation. Christ has completed the human vocation of, of obedience and, and an offering of, of the sacrifice. And in so doing, he brings us to God because we are baptized into him. This image of the body of Christ, the more you look at the New Testament, is taken extremely literally as an organic reality. We are literally members of an organic body. It's not like being a member of a club. You are, it's, it's the connection you have to Christ in the spirit makes you a limb of a living organism. So, he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. Good Friday, he died in his body, but on Sunday he rose. We want to be careful with this, um, the spirit. He didn't just rise as a spirit. But he, the body was um, raised in the spirit. And I, I think the way I, I sort of um, think about this, especially when we're looking at like the Easter resurrection narratives, um, there's a passage in Luke's gospel where Jesus comes in and uh, through the block door and peers, and they're all like, Ah, and he and he's, he says, "No, it's me." Shows his hands in the side. Says, "Give me, give me something to eat." He eats it, and he says, "Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have." Now, my hypothesis is that he has flesh and bones, but he does not have flesh and blood. Blood is seems to be the life principle of this world, but so he has a physical body animated by the spirit, and the life principle of the spirit seems to replace the life principle of the blood. Don't go say like I'm, I'm telling this is thus said the Lord, but but meditating on it, it makes a certain amount of sense. So when he's when he's um, made alive by the Spirit, his body is risen by the Spirit. And, and so we want to avoid this Gnostic idea and heretical idea that the resurrection was entirely a spiritual thing and not an embodied reality. Because the Jewish hope was quintessentially for the resurrection of the body. There was no sense in the Jewish hope predating Christ that Israel would be saved in some spiritual way. We'd all die and go to heaven. No. Israel would be saved because God would um, have a resurrection and, and they'd come to life and we in, in, in live in Israel as God promised in the Torah. So in Ezekiel, where flesh is put on the, the, the bones, the bones, there is no, the dry bones, there is no mention of blood. Huh. As Jack is referring to a famous resurrection, resurrection passage, which is Ezekiel 37. And this is a prophecy of resurrection, Ezekiel writing about 600 years before Christ. And actually, the image of, of uh, Ezekiel, because last time we, we talked, I, I talked, you know, refer often to the idea that Israel went into exile in Babylon at the end of the Old Covenant, about 600 B.C. Eventually, he came back and rebuilt the temple. But um, 
Ezekiel's talking to Israel in exile in Babylon, where they thought, oh, our hope is all cut off, we have no hope. And so that's where the prophecy of the dry bones of Ezekiel 37 comes in. God says to Ezekiel, save these bones, you know, uh, rise, and, he, and, and they come together and clang, and, and, it, and at the end it says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So here's some, some things we can um, dive into sidetracking conversations on. Mm-hmm. Being put to death in the flesh, being alive by the Spirit, by whom we also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. Now hold that thought for a second. At morning prayer, we've been reading Genesis, and we've meditated on this a little bit one morning. There's a cryptic passage in Genesis 5 or 6 where it says, And the sons of God saw that the daughters of women were fair, and they took for their wives the ones they wanted. There is a, the, the preeminent tradition about this is that these sons of God are angelic beings who left their proper domain as angels and had intercourse with human women and produced giants through whom rampant evil spread on the earth. Um, you get some of this in a, in a tradition of a book called the Book of Enoch, which is not a biblical book, but what's interesting about Enoch is it's quoted a couple places in the New Testament. Hmm, really? So all, what it does mean is that this tradition of disobedient spirits <clears throat> uniting with human women is part of the way the Jewish people looked at what that meant. So this is what he's talking about here, that Genesis 5 uh, or 6 statement. Uh, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient when the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. They were disobedient spirits of God chained because that was the punishment for for what they, they, but they had, they they had, uh, um, through their disobedient actions, had caused a uh, proliferation of evil. And so, they, so they are, so here's the, here's the image she's getting at here. The disobedient spirits are chained awaiting judgment. The judgment hasn't happened yet, but they're chained awaiting the judgment. Uh, While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. This is an anti-type which now saves us. Excuse me. There is an anti-type which now saves us. So let's talk about this type and anti-type. The ark that Noah built is a type, that is, a thing that happened that points forward to a later and greater thing. And this this whole idea of typology, we we use it a lot in the Old Testament. For example, um, the Passover lamb is a type of Christ. The Israelites took a lamb, killed it, spread the blood on their lintels of the doorposts, and the angel of death passed them over. That's a type of how the blood of Christ shed for us that covers us, and therefore we're saved from the avenging angel of death. So 
he's saying here that the Ark of Noah is a type. And as I mentioned, uh, actually Jeff Wells, I'll remind me to send you the thing, there's something called, in Kentucky, called the Ark Experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, where yes. someone has built a full saw, an Ark that's actually to the dimensions of the biblical one. And, wow. and Jeff said, you're right, it's enormous, because it's, it's um, the Ark was, um, how many cubits? Might be, but it's. I think it's 450 feet. Knowing that the full length of a football field is 300, so it's it's a boat that if you dropped it on top of a football field would would overshadow it in every direction. Enormous boat. Anyway, but the point he's not talking. He's not. He's not trying to get us caught up in or uh, uh, interested in the size of the boat. The boat's a type. Because judgment is coming on the world in the days of Noah. And God said, Noah, build a boat. And everyone who comes in the boat gets saved. You're not in the boat, you're not saved. So, so what is the ark a type of? Well, salvation. Salvation, but it's a remnant. It saves. It's well, give me, a, give me a more substantial idea of what it's a type of. Church. An embodied idea. Church. Church. Which is the the body, of, body of Christ. Body of Christ. So, 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 and if you are in Christ, you are saved from the judgment that is coming. That's the exact image Peter is picking up on here. Those in the days of Noah, the ark was built. All the animals got in. They were saved. They weren't in the boat. Dinosaurs and unicorns. <laughs> I would have thought, like, every living, every creature died. I'm supposing that the fish did okay. Yeah, right. But, yeah, one would assume that. But, um, so, eight souls were saved, that is Noah's family, through water. Water reminds us of baptism. 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 The anti-type. Which, which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, not the outward washing away, but the answer of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we say here is the spirit that um, allows us, because there, there's a paradox in the whole idea of faith that we even believe that faith itself is a gift. Yeah, well, it is. So... Since we're talking about the ark here, I don't want to interrupt your thought. So when God created earth and then the, these angels that came down and caused havoc to happen, so God had to rescue or save the remnant, the, these eight individuals and whatever pairs of animals and and he's and God was sorry that he he formed or that he created what he created is what it says in the scripture in Genesis. So how how do you how do you how do you explain that? Well, I I, I thought about this a while ago in some conversation, and I think I'm less troubled by it as I thought about it this way. I mean, God is is portrayed in the scriptures as, as experiencing the emotions mm -hmm. appropriate to the moment. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's not like God didn't know this was going to happen. How could this have happened? But when it comes and you see the wickedness, gosh, yeah, there's a sorrow. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Very like thing. Jesus wept. But but yeah. Jesus wept over this over Jerusalem. Yeah. Like he didn't know right. that they were going to reject him. I like that. And over Lazarus dying. And so likewise, um, I mean, I think this does apply a little bit to the spiritual life. Like you could say, well, why are you sad? You know, Jesus is risen and you should just be happy. <laughs> well, it hurts today. Yeah, it sure mm-hmm. does. I know. That Jesus raised. I know I have a hope beyond this. That doesn't mean that the emotion appropriate to the thing I'm now experiencing can be skipped. Mm-hmm. And so God, the scriptures doesn't doesn't portray a God who dispassionately doesn't care, but one who loves the creation He made. Was sorry it it did this evil happened, and that but now even then is going to provide a means of salvation. Through the remnant, which preserves it. That's a great answer. And that seems to me to, and, and if you think about our own spiritual life, you know, if you're sad, you should be sad. That doesn't mean you don't believe in the resurrection, God's going to save you or anything like that. It means what you're going through in your life now hurts. And so just as Christ said, I thirst, so you might thirst. It doesn't mean you don't believe in God. It doesn't mean you don't believe there's a future. It doesn't mean any of those things. It, it's, it, and this is, I would say the truncating of, of the emotional life is a principal sin of contemporary spirituality, where it tells you because Jesus is saved, you know, that you should never be sad. This is what gets this, the, the mere, you know, I, I, I'll be careful with this, but the mere celebration of life is always the funeral. It's like, we're going to celebrate the lives of those who we love to die, but, but Funerals remind us that there's still this thing called death, and there is appropriate to mourn. And it doesn't mean that when you're mourning the loss of something, you don't believe that Jesus is Lord. And you, it's so the silliness of trying to act like you can't, you shouldn't experience the emotions that are appropriate to life. You shouldn't, as St. Paul says, grieve as those who have no hope. But St. Paul does not say you shouldn't grieve. And so that's. That's, I think, what God is portrayed as being here, so doing here. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good explanation. So, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, baptism, not the outward cleansing, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He rose. We're a, we're risen in Him through the gift of the Spirit, and now we can come to God in faith and experience the same hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. He's Lord. So, when, you're li- when we're living out our life and making our case, as it were, and you do something to me that's wrong, and I have a chance to when I decide not to unrighteously avenge as a whole side moral conversation, a righteous response that, you know, when somebody does something wrong, it doesn't mean you can't say it's wrong. It doesn't mean if they broke a law, you can't have them arrested. What righteous means, I'm not going to respond unrighteously to, to, the, to the evil. So when I, when I choose not to respond unrighteously, I maintain my innocence before the judge who's at the right hand of God, that's the verdict I want. So I can endure 
in some degree, the wrong that I experience here because I want this verdict here, just as Jesus endured the wrong he suffered at the Jewish leadership's hands, at Pilate's hands, at the crowd's hands, because he wanted a different verdict. And that's the motivation of the Christian life. And in fact, that verdict that we're talking about is not just some future um, not just some future thing. When we come to the altar of God in our, and, and receive Christ, we've experienced that verdict right now. We, 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 we the God has assured us that his favor and goodness towards us, and that we are very members in court the mystical body of thy son. And now, to make that right, we have to, we, we come, we have to confess the wrong, and, and you know, we have to maintain that status, <clears throat> where, we, where we renounce that, when we, and that's when we come back to our prayer every day, so, you know, because we're focusing on that, that eternal verdict, rather than, how do I get even with all these bad people who do me wrong? That, and that's what he's talking, that's perspective. That's how Jesus lived. He suffered a lot of wrong and betrayal. He didn't avenge himself. Now, I want to say, though, that um, we, we need to understand this not to be um, spongy-brained people in reading the New Testament, that um, Jesus didn't do that, did not avenge himself in his earthly life as a and in, in, in he died, obedient to death, rose. He sits at the right hand of God. He did, judgment did come upon Israel for its rejection of him. When the Roman legions completely leveled the city of Jerusalem in the year AD 70, within a generation of his death. And Jesus himself prophesied that that would happen. The day is coming upon you, it's in Luke somewhere, when your enemy will, will surround you, build an embankment, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you, because you didn't know the time of your visitation. So, when I say the, 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 the mushy brain stuff is, oh, Jesus just about love. He's about love, but love also requires justice. He's long-suffering. He called Israel to repent. Even after his death, resurrection, ascension, he sent the church, calling Israel to repent. One of the perhaps most profound moments in, in refusal is St. James of Jerusalem. You can, you can look it up and Google the martyrdom of St. James, who was killed by the Jewish leadership in about 40 or 50 AD. He was pushed off the pinnacle of the temple and stoned to death. There's, there's a time, God is long-suffering, he wants people to repent, but there comes a time when all that is wrong will be made right. Otherwise, it makes no sense to have Jesus be Lord. And so, I just want to say that, and that's what we're saying is, is we believe there will be a vindication of the right, which is why we want to maintain innocence and get that verdict. And not, um, the problem when we, when we live in the world and somebody does wrong to us, and we avenge ourselves, we become guilty again, and subject to the same judgments coming on the world for its own disobedience. 
And this is why when Jesus said, you know, forgive, you know, um, you know, made us say, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is the the um, insidiousness of anger because it, it undermines our 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 uh, blamelessness because all of a sudden you who wronged me, I'm allowing you to make me angry and allowing myself, you're, all of a sudden now you're determining how I behave. But if I can let go of that and give that to God, and and it, this is work, I don't mean to say that, that letting it go is easy. I can let go of it, and I'm not, I'm not going to live in response to you. I'm going to live in response to God who's vindicated me. So I might just start with, you know, help me to forgive, help me to let go, kind of thing. All right, so, so um, chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. This comes right out uh, of... Uh, um, St. Paul in Philippians says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here it's saying, that's Philippians for those listening, chapter 2. And then he goes on to say, who, who being in the form of God, didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He goes on to say, became obedient to the death of the cross. Arm yourself with that mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Which is the death, that's kind of the death to the world, the death to the world be vindication. Which is a hard thing. This is why I have to come back again and again to the life of prayer. We have to let it go again and again. And it's the way we let it go is as we reconnect with God and experience the grace of God. It's from that resource we find the grace to let go of my need to get back in. And that's what it says. Arm yourself also with the same arm yourself. Which suggests continually arm yourself. Cease from sin. That you, for he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And the lusts of men, again, not overtly sexual, it's, it's not just that, but it's all these things I want. And it's the desire now is for God, who alone can fulfill those desires, so we're saying no to the false fulfillments in order to have the true ones. Verse 3, for we have spent enough of our past, of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So he... He, he is giving a litany here of things that were kind of common to pagan life in the ancient world. 
temple culture parties and things like this, like pagan life in the world we live in now. You know, there are various things of it, you know, that of, of the excess. Um, I also think there's something here too about um, the idea of, of the party, um, because I do think that, the, that as a church we do have a party, and I think the party of the church is different than the party of the world. We're always celebrating the life we have in Christ. Um, and, and that's a joy of celebration. And so we, we, we're festive and we enjoy the good things. That's different than pagan and unbelieving revelry with the party of the world, which is largely carried out to kill the pain of life in the world to run from and to forget about what it is we're dealing with. And so um, that is a different orientation of the party, and that's what allows us to, and that's why, for example, we have the upcoming season of Lent, one reason, it's not the a lot of reasons and themes of Lent, but um, why we fast. We don't want those things to control us. We need to, you know, we understand that to have the party the right way we have to not have a party. A continual, unabated party leads to leads us to be overcome by things, leads us to, you know, addictions and things like that. So, um, the prodigal's father, you know, that when he came home, that they had a party. The party, the party, music, and yet for celebrating the salvation yeah. of 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 the. Um, so and and so this is why the the rhythm of the church here is a rhythm of. Yeah. Fasting, feasting, yeah. and every major uh-huh. feast is preceded by a fast. It's for our benefit because we believe that our fallen nature, you know, needs to be disciplined in order to find its true end. If not, it will it will you know, become oriented towards things that won't ultimately fulfill it. We leave it empty. So when people uh, criticize these Christians for not going along with them in the pagan parties, Peter says, I'll give an account to him that's ready to judge the the death. Why? Because Jesus can vindicate you. Mm-hmm. So when somebody makes a complaint, and notice the courtroom scene here, too, they, 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 um, you know, they, they think it's strange or they even they accuse you. Notice even the language of spiritual life, the accuser mm-hmm. is very much courtroom term, the devil, the accuser, you know, Jesus, the, the, the defense attorney. <laughs> Give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 6. For this reason the gospel is preached also to those who are dead. For they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. Take I have no idea what that means. Unless it take a stab. Well, let's just think for a second here. I mean, just we don't, don't, don't. Okay, well, um, so we have a, um, the Apostles' Creed, what do we say about what Christ did after death? He descended into hell. He descended into hell. Remember that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
What, um, what is the, what is the, uh, this is something that we teach in choirs class, it's not entirely a random question, but what is the word for hell in the Apostles' Creed? Gehenna? No. Sheol? Sheol. Sheol, which is um, equivalent to, to the, to the um, you know, Greek Hades and the um, Hebrew Sheol were likewise in their pre-New Testament times simply the um, expression of the state of beings who are dead, their bodies in the ground, and their spirits are in Sheol or Hades. And, and so the Jewish hope was for the reversing of the process that had gotten them there. If you got to Sheol by your body going to ground, your spirit going to Sheol, got nailed to the resurrection, where the, the, the body is raised, the spirit is reunited, and comes back. Always embodied life. <clears throat> so, if Jesus descended into Hades, and if you look in your prayer book, lest you think I'm preaching, the, the first instance of the Apostles' Creed in the prayer book is a morning prayer. And there's a little rubrical note after that first instance that says, um, instead of the words, he descended into hell, maybe said the words, he went to the place of departed spirits, which are considered to be words of the same meaning in the creed. But the, a hell is one of those things that acts like he went to the fires of eternal punishment, which don't exist yet. Gehenna is the final judgment. Now we have the intermediate state of people awaiting judgment, awaiting resurrection. You get this at the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of Revelation, where um, in chapter 20, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, Gehenna. The intermediate state becomes the permanent. Ah. Is that paradise that we talk about? Well, paradise is, is, is the intermediate of the redeemed. So what, what parable teaches us that distinction? Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus oh. and the rich man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a certain rich man who fared sumptuously every day, and there was a beggar named Lazarus later to escape, full of swords, desiring to be fed with crumbs without the rich man's table. It came fast that the, that the beggar died and was carried by, by angels to Abraham's bosom. The nurseman also died, and in Hades, in torment, he looked up. So, what developed in the what developed in theology in the time between the end of the Old Testament, four or five hundred BC, and the beginning of the New Testament, you know, was the idea that. That whereas the Old Testament presents Sheol as one big holding tank, it came to be the, the idea, no, there's actually a division in Sheol between the righteous and the wicked. Um, if you've been to a funeral, um, occasionally we chant um, a, 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 a chant from the Book of Wisdom, which is an apocryphal book of the New Testament, period, which says, the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God. And there shall no torment touch them. And the side of the unwise has seemed to die, but they are at peace. If you read on in wisdom, it says, 
That's the unrighteous. It's not so with them. <laughs> um, so, so that's the that's the idea that develop that Jesus gives his imprimatur to. Yes, those who are gods are with him. Those who are not are not. And moreover, there's a, a gulf, so you can't change the eternal destination after this life. Okay, that. That's the queer teaching there. When we pray for the departed, we don't pray for the salvation of those who are not saved. Um, we may pray for mercy. We don't, but but that's just the kind of a way of expressing what else could you do with someone who's gone. But when we pray for the, 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 the departed in Christ, we pray that they will continue to grow in the life that, that we have. That's the idea. Yes. So, when it says, this reason the gospel is also preached to those who are dead, if Jesus went to the place of departed spirits, it's obvious that he took the gospel with him. He, his, his life, death, and resurrection, is, is, at least his death, because that actually is pre-resurrection, um, touches the dead of all ages. <clears throat> what he has done now confirms you know, salvation and judgment and so when he says the preachers were also those who were dead, they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. And there's the, 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 the idea, at least as the way we think about it, is that when Christ descended to the place of departed spirits, he, he brought out of that captivity those who were his into paradise. They, they are now with him. That's the idea. Any questions about that? A lot of feel free to raise it. So we don't have to wait till the second coming. So what? You, 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 when you die, we life goes on. In the New Testament words that are used to describe what life is after death and before resurrection, and what we call the intermediate state, are that we are asleep with Christ in paradise. Those are the, that's what's said. We don't, you know, more of, beyond that, we do not know. We do know it's not final. The resurrection has not taken place. So, so the dead and the living will be raised together. That's why our funeral epistle from Thessalonians says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. That's the one word. Lest you sorrow those who have no hope. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we believe that he will also bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And you go on top of the resurrection, that when, if, when Christ appears, those who are his and are alive will be spontaneously resurrected. And then, uh, excuse me, no, he says it wrong. He says the dead in Christ will rise first, so the departed are raised, and then those who are alive are caught up. And the best image of this I think, I mean, the one I find most compelling is that N.T. Wright's image um, that we're caught up with Christ, and then there's a big procession of Christ, the King, and his people into the inheritance of the new king, of the new creation. That's, that's, um, in, in the erroneous rapture theology that is rampant in our culture, you may not 
be familiar with it, but you've certainly heard the word rapture somewhere. That passage is taken to mean that those who are alive will be caught up in the clouds, and then Jesus is going to take them away somewhere. But that's not consistent with anything else the Bible talks about in the resurrection. When he appears and raises the dead, this is the culmination of his redemptive work, and the new creation has begun. There's no... And the first fruits of that is Christ's resurrection. Right, first fruits of Christ's resurrection. Can, can, it, can it not be an eternal place where like Christ goes to those who died after him that never heard about him? Like, what about that? We don't I know. Hope so. I, I, you know yeah, I don't let's know. hope we so. Don't, we don't know what we don't know. We have a generous approach to praying for the departed because we want to commend it to God. We certainly want it to happen. Yeah, it's up to yeah. God. We're, we're not in the illusion that we can manipulate, you know, we, no. someone who was hard-heartedly rejected, you know, by our, you know, giving some money or something, we'll get in. It's, we don't believe that. But, mm-hmm. but, but prayer for the departed expresses concern. We desire it to be so. Mm-hmm. But God will reveal to us what is so when he appears, which is why we ought not to develop extensive doctrines concerning things about which we know very little. Mm, okay. We ought to be agnostic, which means we ought to be able to say, I don't know. What about the people in Africa who've never heard? I don't know. Let's hope they're saved. Right? Let's yeah. pray for them. Let's, let's want it. You know, but let's trust that God is just. Hard to believe that day, anyway, that nobody has heard that anybody, there's anybody who hasn't heard of God. I knew a guy that went to Concordia Christian College and didn't know about salvation. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. There's no way you know under his arm or something. Probably <laughs> football player. Okay, okay. <laughs> I cleaned that up a little. <laughs> All right. So verse seven. <clears throat> but the <clears throat> excuse me. But the end of all things is at hand. This is my, my favorite words. Um. This is the, the Greek word telos. The end is the telos. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean everything's finished. It means something more like completion. God is bringing mm. everything to its proper completion in Christ. And that's why the word end for us often has a doomsday feel <laughs> that it doesn't really have in the New Testament. Um, the this word actually, um, the end of all things is at hand, is, re- is related in, in its uh, linguistic form to Jesus' words on the cross where he says, it is finished. I've completed the work. And so the end is, is Christ working in the world through the Spirit, and when, the, when the, 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 the end comes, the completion will be the new creation will be done, and then we'll enter into it. So it's not like, oh no, God's going to soon destroy everything, so you better be scared to death and do good because you're afraid of it. It should be the completion of our salvation is coming, and this should motivate us to want to be faithful as we await its appearance. That's why he says, be serious. The end of all things is at hand. At hand means near. 
and it has both a, a temporal and a spatial Im, uh, implication. It's near, it's, it's coming, but it's also, in a sense, here because we're already living in Christ. And the Christian life and the spirit is always caught up in the tension between that which we experience now and that which will be completed when he comes. So be serious and watchful in your prayers. Watchful means um, be on the lookout, be aware of what's happening. It's like, don't be fooled into thinking that something, you know, temporal is more important than something eternal. And that's the, in the prayers, it's that perspective of prayer that enables us to see the way things really are and live rightly. It's quite the life of prayer, which we, <clears throat> is almost a, a theme for us continually, is so important. Only through this prayerful communion with God, through the reading of the scriptures, do we have the right perspective to help us be aware of what's really happening. <clears throat> Excuse me. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. Mm. For love will cover a multitude of sins. That's actually a quote. You know what it's from? Do you have a cross-reference in your Bible? Proverbs. Proverbs. It, it actually, it's the second part of a two-line proverb that it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sins. Um, and it's the, um, you could draw too much out of the theology of that, but um, it, our love for others helps us show that our sins are forgiven and covers a lot that's wrong in our lives. It also, our love covers up the errors of others. We're being gracious. We're not, you know, you did this. I want to take all everything you've done bad and, and put it on the table for all to see. Instead, we're going to deal graciously in love and, and draw people into grace and forgiveness. But it covers our sins and also this when we love rightly and it it helps uh, cover up the sins of others as well. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. <laughs> what would be the old, the King James word for grumbling? Grumbling, murmur, okay. murmur. <laughs> murmur in the wilderness. Murmur, murmur, murmur. <laughs> Now, hospitable here, this is a, a preeminent biblical value. I mean, it actually was an ancient cultural value. Even the Greek classics, the failure to practice hospitality to strangers got people nailed. So this comes into greater focus here. But the point I would make here is we think of hospitality. Yeah, I'm having a dinner party, invite my neighbors over. Not what he's talking about. Okay. He's talking about welcoming others into the church, into fellowship, especially those you don't like as much. Jesus said that in his own parable. He said, uh, when you give a dinner party, don't invite your friends because they'll just repay you. <laughs> he says, when you invite a party, invite the poor, the lame, the, the whole blind, because they can't repay you. Then you'll be repaid at the resurrection of just. Because then you're loving without getting without, no one can respond to you. 
So the hospitality that you give is, is the mirroring of Christ who loves us. Not just, okay, if I do this for her, she'll get this back. It's just a free expression of love. Because love, when we're, when we experience the love of God, we understand that love loves because that's what love does. God loves because that's who he is. He doesn't do it to manipulate. Just, he can't, he can't do anything other than do that which is, is the good because that's who he is. The more we're connected to him, the more we will always look at the good, especially to those who, who we may not be naturally disposed to do it. We'll begin to get the ability to look at them in the light of the way God looks at us. I've come to God and asked for this kind of embrace, and maybe that's an implication for how I, I'm going to behave this way. How do you address what's going on in the world at the moment, where people are obviously, their minds are crazy, and they want to kill other people? People they don't know? Well, well of course, this, is isn't, this isn't new. Um, oh, but it's know, a lot more prevalent. It, it's, 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 it's more possible with the kind of weapons we have now. You used to just have a sword, and now you have. No, in England they don't do it with guns. They do it with knives because they don't have the guns. So it's still the same mentality: kill. Um, don't get caught up in that kind of hatred, and we certainly hope it doesn't happen to us. Oh but we have a hope that you know that that's what. This is precisely why. What are you going to do about that? What, what can yeah, you do about that? You can, you can pray, Lord Jesus, come. And that's actually the, the ultimate motive for the prayer for Jesus to come is that justice. People are doing bad things to people. God, stop it. Now, um, there's, that's the prayer of the souls under the altar in Revelation chapter 6, 7, where they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood? And, and blood will be avenged. Um, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's happened. So that's, that's what we do. We say come. But we don't respond to it in kind so we don't fall into the same judgment. We've been saved from that. Again, easier to stay as a principle of Bible class and to carry out in daily life, but that's our vocation to figure out how to do that. Work in doing that. And also understanding, I mean, I still want to understand how to be hospitable without being a doormat. Like, that doesn't mean. Yeah, it has some boundaries. Um, it, 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 it's because the other thing about that hospitality of welcome is that people whose lives are disordered uh, need to be welcomed, but they need the boundary too. They need to feel like you can't do that here. Yeah. But that's what love does. It's it's a sentimental love that just gives and can't say, you know, can't draw a boundary and can't correct. Okay. Um, so um, that that idea of loving in the right way of of, of well, let's just think about um, the way that God loves us. I think that grace is this mixture of embrace and conviction in that word. God embraces us, and in the light of his embrace, we see what's amiss, and we change. And so, um, when we 
or interact with others, we embrace them, but then we let we you know we should let them know hey, this you can't do that. Hmm. This is like you know I have a couple of stories like the woman caught in adultery. Now I don't condemn you either. No, don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Or the Samaritan woman at the well, when Jesus welcomes into fellowship, she gives him water, which was he normally a Jewish man wouldn't take water from her, and he does. He says, "Go ahead, go get your husband." Uh, and Jesus said, "Yeah, I know you don't have one. You had five. You're living with some guy now, but he's already embraced her. He's already welcomed her, loved her, and now the correction comes. So this is the framework. Whereas, like some of the church gets this." Backward, where we're moralizing about the world, people outside the church. When uh, again, this is this is a complex question. Yeah, I don't always. There's no. She was ready. You have to. You have to. um, We each have to work this out in our own. It's not wrong for church to stand for what's right against evils in the world, but most people involved don't know God, and so they need. You you want to confront it in a way that that that. um, So there's that. Um, be hospitable, welcome without grumbling. Don't complain when you have to be nice to somebody you like. Because <laughs> each one has received a gift. This is a spiritual gift, a charisma. Minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Here's a passage that, it, that, it, that explicitly says that in the baptismal gift of the Holy Spirit, you receive some kind of gifts of the Holy Spirit, gift or gift. And whatever it is you've received, use it. We've, we have the spiritual gifts inventory we use to kind of help identify that. Um, John Cruz has made a fillable PDF out of it, so if you email the author, it gets you that, I feel like just plug thing in and do it. Did it in class last night and had a, I did it. So, but if you don't know what your gifts are, you should think about those. And then serve. Minister to one another. Serve. That's what you're called to do as a, as a you know, part of the temple, a living stone. You're supposed to be, you use what you've been given by Christ to grace to minister to other people. As a steward of God's grace. And they, as anyone speaks, let them speak as the oracles of God. That is some of some gift of teaching or preaching. If anyone ministers, which means serves, like that would be like tasks, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So in our serving, again, the purification of our motives, we're not serving so I need people to recognize how much I've done, how great I am, but because whatever God has given you as a gift, as you use that to best your ability, you're looking for your reward from the judge who, who will who will give the, 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 the only the only reward that matters. And in all things God may glorify through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And therefore we will Leave one section of chapter four to go with five next week and finish first Peter next week. I'm confident. <laughs> but we will then be we, pray we will then be in Lent. <clears throat> so come looking serious.
Fasting a lot. No, Jesus said, anoint your head and wash your face. So up here, fast. So. Let's pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. With y'all, with Adriana and Jim and Phyllis, and a phone number I recognize. But good to have you with us. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Would you like a lemon? For sure. You have to acknowledge the ritual. I've got to find a leg. I love how someone like that. I've got like a really good collection of books. Because people, they'll buy it. If I brought it down, I need to figure out how to expand it. Uh, that whole shelf on top. Building program. <laughs> right, Fisher? Would you like it? Yes. On top of your bookshelf. That might look messy. Uh-huh. Yeah, that from your tree at home. Actually, are you reading all It's from my niece's tree. I have a whole My tree is tiny. I only have a few. One whole shelf like that? Oh my gosh. You have a lemon tree? Yeah, yeah. No, we have orange. Yeah, orange. Yeah, I remember you brought one. Okay, I gotta go check it I don't know. I would tell you, occasionally I was glad. I don't like doing it, but the one who trains you. Oh, Caesar Milan? Yes. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's like well, a lemon. I mean, a lemon. Yes, thank you. How's your dog doing? Um, well, I have an appointment next week. Yeah, um, she's doing okay. We had some squirrel activity. And um, instinct takes over. But I've, I'm managing her, and um, there's possibility of injections to strengthen the bone. Oh, wonderful. So, so far she's good. And, um, Carol, would you ask her that I've got, and I've got, here, we'll give that one to the bishop. Would you like a lemon? So she's, 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 she's holding her own. I'm not making, uh, those are nice. Fancy. No, she is on so we'll see what we say. Go to the last line. 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 It's supposed to be from. good for you. I don't know. I, use it Margarita's I do too. It's a good salad dressing. It's a flavor of a lot of things. Yeah. I saw his work. Oh, season one. Yeah. I happened to watch an episode this week in which the theme was separation anxiety. Oh, really? I like the concept. And in this one episode, he covered three different cases to really emphasize what needs to be done. To to get rid of it, and it was just amazing. You can train a dog to and that they were some really well, serious cases. What happened? I believe the first time she jumped off the balcony. Is I did not know then that she has noise phobia. And I think somebody set off a, an M80 or something 
and um, she had to get out of the house. She had to get away from that noise, and that's when she went and opened the door through the screen and oh, off the balcony. Uh -huh. So I, I don't know. Anyway, after seeing that, that you, know, you can. Well, you know, yeah, you the other day my neighbor had a 93rd birthday down the street. So I left her. I told her, <laughs> I'm coming right back. You'll be a good girl. And I was gone maybe about 20 minutes. And when I came home, she was by the door and she was fine. So I thought, what I'm going to do is try that and increase the time. Good luck. Oh, that, that wasn't one of his no, things. No, that was not my what, no. what did he, he. Paula, I can't tell you the whole procedure. Okay. Because, but he starts out with right away letting the dog know that you have your own area. And the dog is not to come up to you and touch you or stand up on the hind legs or any of that other kind of stuff that makes your heart stop. And you teach the dog he has a place, the pad or rug uh -huh. or some favorite thing to lie down. That's where he starts so that the dog is no longer hovering around, hovering, especially as the owners go towards the door. Oh. So he's, he's changing the mindset from the get-go. It was remarkable. Huh, three different cases. I'll, I'll see if I can Google that episode. Yeah, you might be able to do that. <laughs> Is the dog whisperer or something? Yes. Yeah. There's all sorts of whisperers, aren't there? Yes. Dark whisperers. And... Yeah, there's a book called The Elephant Whisperer. And it's a That's right. Book. Oh, wow. Wonderful. You'd have to be real confident to do my Thank you. 